Section 7 of Feminism in Greek Literature. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For further information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Feminism in Greek Literature by Frederick Adam Wright. Chapter 7 Euripides. All Greek literature has one peculiar quality. As the tribe of scholiasts and translators have found from the beginning, it lends itself to interpretation, and Euripides has suffered more than most authors from his interpreters. The ancient belief that Euripides was a misogynist is still sometimes held, and such a misconception is not altogether our own fault. It is partly due to Euripides himself, for the poet's favourite weapon is irony, and irony is a double-edged sword which can be turned against those who dare to use it. Euripides does not say plainly and straightforwardly, you men think yourselves naturally superior to women, braver, more truthful, more unselfish. In reality, this superiority is a mere figment of your imagination. Neither the poet nor his audience would have cared for such brutal frankness. Euripides exhibits the facts of life with some little malicious arrangement and leaves the judgment to others. He is too good an artist, as indeed were Aeschylus and Sophocles, to make all his women angels and all of his men the reverse. Many of his women have very obvious faults, so that if you come to his plays with a fixed and comfortable conviction of the superiority of man, and can shut your eyes to more than half of the action, you will probably find in what remains convincing proof of woman's weakness. But often our belief in Euripides' misogyny has quite another source our inveterate habit of taking a joke seriously. Aristophanes, who probably knew Euripides, the man and his plays, better than anyone in this world, represents him as a woman-hater, in danger from woman's vengeance. We draw the inference that Euripides did really dislike women. Now the exact opposite of the truth was what the audience at the performance of an Attic comedy expected. It was allowed, it was considered proper, in the case of a comic poet, that he should turn his facts upside down, Socrates, for example, always professed himself unable to teach anything and thought the practice of taking fees for teaching immoral. Therefore, he is represented in the clouds as keeping a school and teaching for hire. Euripides is the champion of woman's equality. Therefore, he is represented by Aristophanes as a misogynist. There are similar cases in our own social life. An intelligent foreigner, if he read our literature at the time of a general election, and took the election posters seriously, would form a very wrong idea of the estimation in which, we will say the Prime Minister, is held by most of his countrymen. A perversion of the facts is even with us regarded as humorous in politics, and it is thus that we should regard Aristophanes. Classical scholars, however, have always been a serious class, and while they recognise the grossness of Aristophanes, they often fail to see his humour. The irony of Euripides and the humour of Aristophanes are both alien to the Puritan spirit, when they are understood, and to appreciate the first it is necessary to make a close study of all the plays. Euripides was, first of all, a dramatist, and his main business is with his play. But behind the playwright stands the poet and idealist, a man not at all inclined to look on life with philosophic detachment, but feeling, as deeply and as bitterly as any man has ever done, the basis of injustice on which too often human society has been reared. Euripides championed the cause of women's freedom against the decadence of Ionia, as he championed the cause of religious freedom against the reactionaries of Delphi. He realised that the best method of defence is to attack the other side. 
that successful defence is impossible unless, at any rate, you are prepared to take the aggressive. Open militancy in his case was impossible, for the dramatic poet was ostensibly a servant of the state, and the majority, but by no means all, of his countrymen supported the doctrines of the infallibility of the Delphian god and the Athenian man, so that he is compelled to work in exactly the opposite method to that of the misogynists. He does not labour his argument, he does not paint with a heavy brush. If you like to disregard this point of view, you can do so, and still find much that is supremely interesting, his gift of vivid narrative, the light music of his verse, and his unrivalled sense of dramatic effect. But every dramatist, consciously or unconsciously, has some groundwork of thought, some criticism of life, which will appear more or less plainly through the dramatic action of his plays. In Euripides, that criticism is directed chiefly to the testing of three assumptions current in his day. That God reveals his purposes to men, that war has an ennobling effect on a nation and on individuals, that women are by nature inferior to men. With the first two of these dogmas, we are not now concerned. As to the real nature of Euripides' ideas on the third, we should get the clearest view if we consider first the characters of his theatre, then the general body of his plays, and lastly those four dramas which are particularly concerned with the relations between men and women. The two sexes may be subdivided, according to Greek fashion, into six classes. Old man, man, young man, old woman, woman, young woman. And it must be acknowledged at once that Euripides, like most Greeks, is quite lacking in any reverence for age. His old men are apt to be dotards and are treated with humorous contempt. Amphitryon in the Hercules is a type. He lives in a world of illusion. He sees visions and dreams dreams, but when serious counsel or vigorous action are necessary, he is useless. Cadmus and Tiresias in the Bacchae are characters of the same sort. They are meant to be humorous, and the scene in which the two old men, wagging their hoary heads, prepare to dance and sing, is pure burlesque. Cadmus agrees with Amphitryon in his religious views. He is ready to accept the miraculous, if it is profitable, and he scarcely troubles to make any pretense. As regards the divinity of the new god Dionysus, his sentiments are that, as the fellow anyhow is my daughter's son, it is my duty as head of the family to make out that he is a great god. Cadmus and Amphitryon are at least partly self-deceived. Aegis is a mere butt. The old gentleman, who believes that his virility can be restored by magic art, is a child in Medea's hands, and the scene between the two is Aristophanic in its outspoken frankness. Generally speaking, old men in Euripides are impotent. When they are allowed to act, their energies, Tyndarius, for example, and the old servant in the Ion, are mischievous. In one case only do old men play a worthy part, when they are resisting the wanton violence of some full-grown man who is attacking women and children. Sometimes, as with Peleus and Aeolus, they succeed. Sometimes they fail. But in either case, their essential weakness is a foil to the presumptuous strength of their opponent. Coming now to the second class, that of grown men, we get three main types. There is the mean man, the blusterer, and the simpleton. Jason and Admetus are mean men, mean, selfish, and cowardly, capable of asking a woman to save their lives at the risk of their own, but incapable of gratitude. Still, they are handsome, good company, and quite unconscious of their own shortcomings. 
Menelaus is a worse type, and one that the poet especially disliked. He adds to meanness the vices of cruelty and treachery, and is the slave of passion. In the Orestes he is coldly treacherous, in the Andromache treacherous and cruel, and the other plays where he appears merely despicable. Then come the blusterers, Agamemnon and Heracles, Lycus and Eurystheus. The first two are the ordinary sensual man, brave enough and capable of great deeds, but unfaithful, untruthful and self-indulgent. They seem to be strong, and they are strong in body, but they have no strength of mind. Lycus and Eurystheus are men of a lower type, mere bullies depending solely on force, and Euripides does not attempt to make them interesting. Lastly, there are the simpletons, Zeuthus, Thoas and Theoclymenus, an easy prey for the clever women, the priestess, Iphigenia, Helen, who use them as they will. They are the men who with advancing age will be such as Aegeus and Amphitryon, and they almost exhaust the list in our second class. There remain only Theseus, a patriotic abstraction, the male counterpart of Athena, Creon, the king, the name is given to more than one person, an official rather than a living character, and some few persons in the second plan of action, such as the herald Talthebius and the peasant farmer in the Electra. These two latter occupy very subordinate positions, but they are in every way more manly, more generous, more lovable than the great men whom they serve. If we accept them, there is not a grown man in the whole theatre of Euripides who can be regarded with sympathy. When we come to the young men, we are in a brighter world. Euripides is essentially the poet of youth, and his younger characters are always lovable. The heroic boy Menesius and the kind lad Ion are figures drawn with a tender hand. But soon the shadows of the prison house draw in, and the slightest hardness which is visible even in Ion becomes intensified in Achilles, and still more in Hippolytus. The older the person, the less attractive he becomes. Achilles and Hippolytus are very much like the public schoolboy of our day. In many spheres of conduct they are thoroughly reliable, truthful, self-denying and courageous, but they are cruelly hampered by the influence of an environment which shuts out the influence of woman at the most impressionable time of a man's life. Hippolytus is something of a prig, and into his mouth, in the well-known speech, Euripides puts all the stock invective against women. The words are not the lad's own views. He is too young to have had much experience of women, good or bad. They are literature, the views of other men expressed in books and unconsciously assimilated by the younger generation. Hippolytus is an ascetic and exaggerates. Achilles is a more manly character. His first impulses are generous, but he does not carry them into effect, for he is too much under the influence of other people's opinion. Good form is his guide in life. He has, moreover, all a young man's vanity. Countless girls are setting traps to catch me as a husband, he says, and he is deeply hurt to think that he is not consulted. I would have agreed to her death if I had been asked, but I was not, so I will help you. This is the best champion that Clytemnestra can find to save her daughter. The remaining five characters, men unmarried but full-grown, are less interesting. Pentheus is the typical self-pleaser, willful, violent and intolerant. That he happens to be right in his particular case does not make him more sympathetic, nor does it alter the justice of his fate. His mode of thought is wrong. Savage repression is not the way to deal with a cause which enlists women as its chief votaries, 
and is kept active by their enthusiasm. The other pairs, Orestes and Pylades, Eteocles and Polynices, require little notice. All four have the curse of Cain upon them. They draw the sword and fall by the sword. They are murderers first and foremost, and chiefly interesting to the criminologist. So much then for Euripides' men. Let us now contrast them in their monotony of type, impute it to the poet or the sex, as you will, with the infinite variety of his women. Phaedra, Andromache, Hermione, Creusa, Megara, Helen, Alcestis, Clytemnestra, Medea. There is every shade of conduct here, and nearly every form of marital complication, if we remember that none of these wives are in love with their husbands, and that romantic affection between husband and wife is impossible. They are all, when they have children, mothers first and wives afterwards. The childless woman, Hermione, and apparently Creusa, is embittered by her state, and her conduct also is abnormal. She is anxious to take life because she has not given life. The poet is at pains to show the impossibility of married love under Greek conditions. Phaedra is married to an old man, who years before had seduced her sister. Andromache has been forcibly taken by the son of the man who slew her first husband. Hermione has been compelled for political reasons to give up her cousin lover and marry a stranger. Medea, after abandoning everything for her husband, is deserted by him. Creusa has been seduced as a girl, and as a pisalet has married an elderly man. Megara has been abandoned by her roving husband. She and her children are on the point of being killed by a stranger, when Heracles returns and murders them himself. Helen runs away from her lord. Clytemnestra has no words bad enough to use of hers. None of these women are impeccable. Alcistis is the only flawless character, and she is meant to be a saint. Their tempers are as composite as we find them in real life, but, however wrong or mistaken some of their actions may be, not one is altogether unsympathetic. So with the old women. They are sometimes malignant, but they are never contemptible. Their worst deeds are prompted by maternal affection. Phaedra's foster mother is a mischievous and immoral old lady, but her only wish is to gratify her foster child. Hecuba takes a ruthless vengeance on the Thracian king, but she is a mother avenging a murdered son. It is a favourite motive with Euripides, the pathos of the old mother, her sons killed, her daughters ravished, her grandchildren sold into slavery. Hecuba in the Trojan women, Jocasta in the Phoenician women, the chorus of old women in the suppliants, all represent the reverse side of war's pomp and glory. The men triumph and the women suffer. The method is realistic. There is little romance, in the baser sense of the word, in these unkempt, miserable old figures, and yet they supply the poet with some of his most poignant passages. But Euripides is especially successful with his pictures of young girls, virgin martyrs. The type is not extinct, anxious and willing to sacrifice themselves for their male relatives. Iphigenia, Polyxena, and Macaria are subtle variations of one character, and upon the figure of the first, the poet spends all his skill. At the time of the sacrifice at Aulis, she is a sentimental girl, so full of timid modesty, that the very thought of marriage fills her with shame. I hid my face, she says, in the soft wrappings of my veil, and would not take my baby brother in my arms, nor kiss my sister on the lips. I felt ashamed before them. No, I laid up for myself many a fond embrace, 
which I would give them when I should come back, a married woman. The arguments she uses to her mother to justify her sacrifice are poor enough. Vague talk of honour, patriotism and the insignificance of women. Tis better that one man should live than ten thousand women. But her heart is right. For Iphigenia, both marriage and sacrifice prove a delusion. She never returns home, she is defrauded of the joy of motherhood, and spends many years of lonely virginity among strangers and in a strange land. When we see her again, she is a bitter woman, more sensible indeed than the simple girl, but infinitely less lovable. Her thoughts are all of vengeance, against Menelaus, against Helen, against mankind. She performs her horrible task of human sacrifice with no very great reluctance, parceling out a tear in sympathy for kindred blood when any Greek victims fall into her hands, but killing them all the same. For one person alone, she still cherishes some affection, her brother Orestes, whom she left a baby at home, and on him she concentrates her frustrated motherhood. The final stage of this rancour against life is seen in the character of Iphigenia's sister Electra, the unwed, as we have her in the Orestes, and the play that bears her name. Electra's loneliness and suffering, her long brooding, her craving for revenge have turned her mad, and she again has only one sound sentiment, her love for her brother. She is a dreadful figure, but a real one. Fire and the knife, murder, treachery, arson, she is ready for all. Her character is the logical outcome of many years of injuries and insults, of denial of rights and of subjection. She is a proud spirit and will not submit, but her pride cannot alter the situation. At last the strain of hopeless rebellion is too great, and she becomes mad. They make, indeed, a gloomy picture, these unmarried women, for Euripides does not shrink from the darker side of a woman's revolt. As Medea bitterly says, even a bad husband is better than none, and for the unwedded girl there are only two alternatives, a voluntary sacrifice, such as that whereby Macaria escapes from life, or a hopeless struggle against the powers that be, such as Electra tries to wage. We have now taken all the characters of the Euripidean theatre except one, and that one the most important of all, the permanent character of tragedy, the chorus. The chorus is the ideal spectator, the intermediary between audience and actor, the interpreter of the poet's own thoughts. It might be expected that a poet who was a feminist at heart would usually have his chorus composed of women, while a poet who had little sympathy with women would prefer a chorus of men. In our extant plays, this is exactly what happens. It is a curious fact that most of the received ideas about the Greek drama, the chorus of elders, the statuesque movements, the dignity of tragedy, etc., etc., are drawn from the theatre of Sophocles, the most academic of the three dramatists. They would never be deduced from the usage of Aeschylus or Euripides. In the seven plays of Aeschylus, the chorus is composed five times of women, twice only of men. In both cases they are old men, and the weakness of their old age is necessary to the dramatic action. In Sophocles the proportion is exactly reversed. The chorus is five times composed of men, twice of women. Moreover, it is not the dramatic action that fixes either the sex or the age of the chorus in the Oedipus Tyrannus, the Oedipus Colonus, or the Antigone. In the latter play, indeed, most readers will feel that a chorus of women would be more appropriate. The chorus with Sophocles are old men, because the old man is the poet's ideal character. 
of the seventeen plays of Euripides, in only three cases, the Heracles, the Heraclidi, and the Alcestis, is the chorus composed of men. In the first two cases, as in Aeschylus, the ineffectiveness of old men in actual danger is part of the plot. The chorus strengthens the impression made by Iolius and Amphitryon in the Alcestis that the chorus are men is part of the general irony of the play. In the other fourteen plays, the chorus is composed of women, and it is into the mouth of these women that Euripides puts all the most intimate part of his work. Sometimes it is a scene of home life, as in the Hecuba, where a woman describes her last night in Troy. It was at midnight that ruin came. Dinner was over, and upon men's eyes sweet sleep began to spread. All the songs had been sung, my lord had done with the sacrificial feast and its revelry, and was lying in my bower, spear on peg, for no longer had he to keep watch against the throng of shipmen who had set foot on our Ilian land of Troy. As for me, one ringlet of hair I had still to bring to order under my tight-bound snood, and I was gazing into the infinite reflections of my golden mirror, ere I should throw myself upon the pillows of my bed. But lo, a cry went through the city, and a cheer rang out in Troy town. Sons of the Greeks, when, ah, when will you sack the watchtower of Ilion, and get you home at last? Then I fled from my dear couch, with only my smock upon me, like some Dorian maid, and crouched by Artemis's holy shrine, but woe is me, no help found I there. My own man, my bedfellow, I saw slain before me, and then I was dragged down to the seashore, and in anguish swooned away. Sometimes it is a vivid description of outdoor life, such as the picture of the washing-place, where the humbler sort of women could meet and enjoy a little leisure, that pleasant evil, and gossip together. There is a rock that drips, men say, with water from the ocean's bed, and sends from the cliff an ever-running stream, for us to catch in our pitchers. There I met a friend who was washing pieces of fresh-dyed cloth in the river water, and laying them in the warm sun upon the flat stones. From her lips first this news of my lady came to me. Every mood of a woman's mind is represented. Now sad, discordant is the music of a woman's life. Pitiable helplessness is her lot, an evil housemate indeed. There is the trouble of childbirth, the trouble of woman's weakness. Hippolytus. Or, a censorious thing is womankind. If women get a small basis for scandal, they soon add more. Women take a kind of pleasure in talking insincerely about one another. Phoenici. Now triumphant. Children, promise of children's children to be. Children to help their sorrow, to make more sweet their pleasure, to speak with their enemy. Rather, I say, than gold, than a palace of pride. Give me children at home, right heritors of my blood. Let the miser plead for the childless side. I will none of it. Wealth denied, children given, I bless them and cleave to their better good. Ion, Verrill's translation. Or, a strange and wondrous thing for women are the children they bear in travail. Womankind loves a baby. Phoenici. All the questions of sex are considered and judged with clearest sense. Man's love, when it is excessive, is neither excellent nor indeed creditable. But still sex is a divine thing and a gracious, if kept within bounds. A moderate temper, for that I pray, a vaunt, contentious anger, and the ceaseless bickering that drives a husband astray to another woman's arms. Medea. 
Sometimes the question takes a wider range as in the difficult chorus of the Iphigenia in Aulus. The stuff of which men and women are made is different. Their ways are different too. But what is really good, of that there is no doubt. The different methods of rearing and education have a great influence on ideas of excellence. Humble modesty is a form of wisdom, and yet it is wondrous good to use your own judgment and see your duty for yourself. Then life is honourable, and your frame grows not old. It is a great thing to seek after excellence. For us women the quest is secret down the secret ways of love. For men the marshalled state and the thronging crowd make a city to increase and prosper. But the topic on which Euripides insists most is the scandal of literature, the unfair ideas of woman that have been created and fostered by the perversity of writers. Two quotations will suffice, one from the Ion. Ye scandal masters of the lyre, that harping still upon the lust of loosel women never tire, her lewdness ever now be just. How doth her faith superior show beside the lust of loosel man? See it and change your music. Go, another way than once ye ran. Ye lyric libels go, and vex the faithless found, the elder sex. Ion, Verrill's translation. And another from the Medea. It is men now that are crafty in council, and keep not their pledges by the gods. The scandal will turn and honour come to a woman's life. Tis coming, respect for womankind. No longer will pestilent scandal attack women, and women alone. The music of ancient bards will die away, harping ever on woman's perfidy. Phoebus is the guide of melody, and in my heart he never set the wondrous music of his lyre else I would soon have raised a song that would have stayed the brood of male singers. The long years have many a tale to tell, of men as well as of women. This last sentence represents Euripides' reasoned judgment on the problems of feminism. Women are different from men, but they are not inferior. All the arguments that are used to prove woman's weakness could be used equally well against men. So we may leave the characters and turn now to the separate plays. Of the complete dramas that we now possess, the Rhesus is probably spurious. The Cyclops is a comic play, the Helena a burlesque of the tragic manner. Of the remaining sixteen, two, the suppliant women and the children of Heracles, are political plays written to glorify Athens as the champion of oppressed nationalities, and their interest is mainly political. But nothing that Euripides wrote is altogether lacking in vivid touches of feminism, in the children of Heracles, for example, there is one character who in a few words reveals the position of women in Athenian life. For a woman, silence and discretion are best, and to remain quiet within doors. So speaks the maiden Macaria before she consents to a voluntary death. She has had bitter experience of life, and she is willing to die, for existence offers her no very pleasant prospect. A friendless girl, she says, who will take me for his wife? Who will have children by me? It is better for me to die. Her one pathetic desire is to die, not on compulsion but as a willing sacrifice, to escape from life nobly. The word recurs as often in Euripides as it does in Ibsen's Hedda Gabler. To leave the ignoble servitude of women's lot. She begs Iolus to deal the death blow and to cover her dead body. But Iolus, brave old man though he is, cannot bring himself to see her die and her last request is that at least she may die not among men, but in the arms of women. These are her final words. 
for my people i die that is my treasure in death that i take instead of children and my virgin bloom if indeed anything exists below i pray for my part that there will be nothing there if we mortals who must die shall find life's business in that land also i know not where to turn death is counted the surest potion against pain a similar incident forms the most striking scene of the suppliant women here it is not a young girl but a married woman evadne who of her own accord goes to death but her motive is much the same for the sake of a noble repute i die she cries that i may surpass all women in generous courage her husband is dead she is a childless woman and she refuses to live on as a widow her father is anxious that she should nurse him in his old age but with strange perversity she prefers death and the old man is left to make a lament my daughter is dead he cries she who used to draw down my face to her lips and would hold my head fast in her arms nothing is so sweet as a daughter when a father grows old a son's life is a thing of greater importance but sons are not so pleasant when we need fond endearments the main interest of the suppliant women is the same as that of three other plays the phoenician women the trojan women and the hecuba they are concerned with war but war as seen from the woman's side a thing of unredeemed and useless suffering all the glory of conquest disappears women and children are seen paying the price of men's ambition and pride the trojan women is the most lamentable and the most effective of the series written according to the oldest formula of tragedy the chorus are the chief persons in the action hecuba cassandra and andromache are only particular representatives of the sufferings which all the women in the play endure the two male characters the lustful hypocrite menelaus and the honest servant talthebius are of quite subordinate interest the play is an accumulation of sorrow upon sorrow but the climax is the murder of the little child astyanax a political crime not inspired by any of the human feelings of hatred and revenge but coldly calculated by men for the sake of future advantage it is the women the mother and the grandmother of the child who have to suffer that men may sleep in safety as andromache bitterly says she has always followed out the whole duty of woman these things that have been invented as virtuous pursuits for women at those i laboured ever in hector's house to begin with whether censure should attach to women for it or not i may not say but at any rate the thing in itself brings a woman an evil name when she does not remain ever within doors so i put aside the desire for going out and stayed at home moreover i never admitted within our house the fantastic talk that some females enjoy i found my own sound sense the best teacher in domestic matters and made myself sufficing a silent tongue and a quiet face that was what i rendered to my lord and now she has a reward she is to become a concubine in the house of her husband's murderer and is told that one night in the arms of her new lord will make her forget the past as for her baby boy dear youngling nestling in your mother's arms your skin so sweet and fragrant he is torn away and hurled down to death but andromache is not worse treated than the other women hecuba is handed over to odysseus to be his slave to sweep the floor and grind the daily corn the virgin polyxena is reserved to be slain over the tomb of achilles for it is not enough that living men should make women their chattels even the dead hero demands the tribute of a maiden's life 
Cassandra has lived a vestal dedicated to the service of the god, and she too has her reward. The great king deigns to take her to his bed, and in a scene of the grimmest irony, the unhappy girl sings her own marriage hymn. There is all the music of the hymenal chorus, but you have one solitary figure, the unwedded bride, instead of the joyful procession of youths and maidens. The Hecuba deals with the same events as the Trojan women, and in the same spirit. The sacrifice of Polyxena is consummated, and Hecuba takes vengeance on one of her children's murderers, the Thracian king Polymnestor. Beguiled into the captive women's tent, he sees his own children murdered, and is then blinded. The scene where he comes reeling out with blood-dripping eyes reaches the limits of the horrible, but Euripides does not forget to draw the feminist moral. If anyone, the king says, has spoken ill of women in the past, or is now in the act of speaking, or will some day speak, I will cut all his words short. Listen, neither sea nor land breeds such a race as women are. Only the man who has to do with them from time to time knows what they can do. The unhappy victim of a single woman forgets his logic, and imputes the fault of an individual to the sex. If the aggressor had been a man, his thoughts would have been different, and so the chorus tell him. Be not over-fierce against us, nor bring the feminine element into your troubles. There is no need to blame all womankind. The particular note of realistic horror that marks the closing scenes of the Hecuba appears in another group of four plays, the Iphigenia in Taurus, the Heracles, the Orestes, and the Electra. The first three have been exhaustively studied by Dr. Verrill, and it is enough now to say that the methods of criticism which Thucydides and Euripides use upon the Trojan War are here applied to other tales of the remote and heroic past. Both writers, the historian and the dramatist, know that human nature does not change, and they strip away remorselessly the glamour of ancient legend. If such things happened, this is how they happened, says Euripides. And so we have the half-mad, half-heroic figure of Heracles, the sinister Orestes always ready to unsheath his dagger, the ludicrous yet pitiable Phrygian eunuch stuttering and trembling in panic fear, and most terrible of all the unsexed woman Electra. Each play has its own scene of horror, but the climax, perhaps, comes when Electra takes the head of the murdered Aegisthus in both hands and pours forth all her bitterness into the deaf ears. The Hippolytus strikes an entirely different note, and is perhaps the best known of all the plays. It has been adapted by Seneca and Racine, used as material by Ovid, and transposed into a romantic drama by Professor Murray. But in spite of all this, Phaedra's position and motives are often misunderstood. Hippolytus is her natural enemy and the enemy of her children. The bastard son of Theseus, if his father died, would probably oust the legitimate but younger children of the wife from their father's throne and himself seize the power. Phaedra, a young woman married to an old husband, is possessed by a physical desire for the young man, but she struggles against her passion for her children's sake. When she finally gives up the struggle, she secures her children's safety by ensuring Hippolytus's death or banishment. She knows Theseus and she knows that he will bitterly resent any trespass on his property and punish that trespass with all the severity in his power. The charge is a false one, but it is only thus that her children's future can be protected. The last two plays, the Bacchae and the Iphigenia in Aulus, written in old age and in exile at Macedonia, 
still deal with the double problem, the sacrifice to God and the sacrifice to man, and they are constructed on the same lines. In the Bacchae, the men are of three sorts. There is the adept, an impostor who has taken to religion as a trade, the old men, Cadmus and Tiresias, who are religious for social and family reasons, finally the young Pentheus, who is openly irreligious and comes to a bad end. The women alone believe. They are deceived by the adept, and much of their belief is delusion, but it is a real spiritual benefit to them. The ritual of Bacchus was the one chance of escape in a Greek woman's life from the stifling seclusion of the harem home. For a few days at least she became a free creature, allowed to roam at large upon the mountains. The thyrsus of the god took the place of her master's company. The sky was her roof, the grass was her bed, she could put aside the wine-press and the flour-mill and live on milk and honey. The ecstasy of such an escape has never found more intense expression than in the narrative speeches and the choric songs of the Bacchae. In the Iphigenia at Aulus, the men again are of three types, foils all and each to the idealism of Iphigenia and the practical sense of Clytemnestra. Menelaus is the meanest, the slave of desire, ready for any crime to gratify his passions. Agamemnon is the ordinary middle-aged man, afraid of his wife and fond of his family, but capable of deceiving the one and ruining the other. Achilles is the young man of the governing classes, brought up to despise women and to think that every girl is anxious to become his wife. The men quarrel and plot for their own selfish ends, but their schemes are detected by the keen wit of Clytemnestra and rendered useless by the unselfish devotion of Iphigenia. End of section 7